Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Our word today is from Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who are their unrighteousness suppressed for truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For it is in invisible attributes, namely his in- eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. In exchange, glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Two, amen. Oh, man. It's a sweet, sweet, sweet little spirit in the house today. Anybody out there love him today? Lord, I gears to worship you 
by receiving your word. Would you help us to listen, to understand, and to hear with a spirit of gratitude and worship? And God, may the truths that we share fall on good ground. Would it make wise the simple? Would it lead those who are in darkness to salvation? And would it help those who are in your kingdom to move forward in joy? We pray this in the name of our worthy and matchless king and all of God's people say amen, amen, and amen. Tell your neighbor, say he's worthy. Mm, mm. That's good, man. I just want to let y'all know that mm just meant I could have went but I'm not. It's called constraint and restraint. How many of y'all know the Holy Spirit can restrain you? Amen, somebody, amen. Hey, it's good to be with you. Um, if I didn't get a chance, um, for some of y'all who maybe knew, I'm Pastor Tim, the lead pastor at the Avenue. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm looking forward to meeting you, sharing a gummy bear or two. Uh, sorry, anyway, sorry. But anyway, long, long story short, that's another day. It's uh, good to be with you. And, Good to be able to preach God's word. I'm excited, been excited about preaching through this really cool book. What, what are we going through, Avenue? Going through a book of Romans. And at any point in the 16 chapters of Romans, what are the three things that we know this, this thing has got to be related to? There is a what? A message, and there's a messenger, and there are some recipients, and right, that's the ecosystem that the gospel has to thrive in, right? It's got to be preached by willing individuals, and it's got to be received by those who willingly receive it, right? And so there's always, this is Paul's longest explanation of the gospel, right? 16 very intricate, um, uh, deep and dense ideas to kind of fully explain what the gospel is and how important it is in the life of a believer. Last week, we broke it down, right? Uh, we know, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, gospel is one of the most popular words we'll ever hear in Christendom. Um, but we tried to pull that thing apart a little bit so we can have a little bit more clarity. Uh, I asked Sarah Matt, just by way of review, I just throw these back on the screen. So we start thinking about the gospel proper. What is it? All right? It is not Mary Mary's song. Take the shackles on my feet. Oh, yes, it is a genre of music, but that ain't the gospel. Amen, somebody. All right? The gospel is this. It's the news that King David's long-awaited descendant is the son of God, redeemer, and the king of the world. The gospel is also God's means by which he works out his saving purposes, right? It's the way, it's the means of salvation for those who believe. It's the tool God uses to bring individuals into his regime change, into his kingdom, right? It's, the scope of the gospel is who? Who does the gospel benefit? Everyone who believes it, right? It's not for just the Jews, it's not for just the Gentiles, it's not for just the white folks, it's not for just the black folks, it's not for just the educated, it's not for just the uneducated. It is for everyone. It is for everyone, and I love saying it, and I'll say it again, usually, I'm talking about nine times out of ten, anywhere the gospel is proclaimed, the scope of it is very close next to it, isn't it? Let me tell you about this good news, and let me tell you who it applies to. 
everyone. You better be careful because there is a nasty little part of it that doesn't want the scope to be true. There's a nasty little part of all of us that wants good news to go to the good people who we think are good and not to the everyone. Oh, it's good news not to the Republicans, right? It's good news not to the black folks, right? It's good news not to them folks. We love to other. We love to other. So we better make sure we preach the scope. Let's talk. Let's go about the grounds. On what basis, the grounds, on what basis can God bring people into his righteous kingdom, right? This is the gospel. So the gospel talks about the grounds. How, can, how is it that God can get these people in, right? Because God is holy. God is righteous. We'll talk more about that today. And so there's a big gap, right? <laughs> there's a big gap. You had an entrance exam. You needed to make an 80. You made a 40. So people got to figure out, hmm, some of y'all had some good professors, and they graded on a Curve, you know what I'm saying? Okay, you know, this is the cutoff grade and none of y'all pass it, so we're going to get it on a curve. Well, I'm going to tell you, the gospel is not grading on a curve. Hey. Mm. The gospel brings you news of a great exchange. Somebody took your F so that you could pass. That's the gospel. So that's the grounds of the gospel. And the access point of the gospel is for us. How do we access the gospel? By faith. Only by faith. Not by how many times you went to Sunday school, not by how many times you read, not by how many dollars you give the church. It's only by placing your faith in Jesus as the only way that you can get into his kingdom, right? So we kind of pulled that apart last week. Um, And as we move forward this week and the next three or four weeks, um, what is, uh, October is famous for Halloween. Now, you know, I am a very, I grew up black, charismatic, holiness, so I struggled. So just so y'all know, help me my conscience when y'all come up. And Pastor Tim, and you got your little Freddy Krueger mask on, I don't think that's cute. I just want to let you know. And yes, I'm in my feelings. Yes, I'm probably trying to be holier than thou, but I'm just telling you that's my background, so don't just take care of my conscience, okay? Just help, help me out. Um, but this will be, and ironically, this will be a spooky month. <laughs> We're getting ready to go into some spooky passages of Scripture. Um, I did bring good news to you today. That my, where, where did Matt go? I'm about to highlight Matt. Matt Walk, he had to, man. Emily's husband. First of all, shout out. How many of y'all were blessed that encounter uh, on Wednesday? Man, let me just tell you something. Uh, you don't, I just, listen, I'm telling you, I know there's a whole lot of other things you could be doing on Wednesday night. And maybe, amen, I'm amening all those. But man, encounter is your church's opportunity to, in a more unrestrained kind of environment, worship with you, minister to you, pray over you, I don't know. This might not be one you want to pass up. 
It's pretty cool, man. Um, but we started off, we gave some testimonies, and it was so cool, man. Um, Gus gave his testimony. Mike P., uh, the living stints, gave a testimony that God, they've been praying, God found them a new church home. Man, praise God. Kendall gave a testimony. I think I got everybody uh, except for Emily. Emily came up, and uh, it's so crazy, man, how God was working in that room. Emily said the last time she was on that stage, she was really just praising God for the gift of singleness and her satisfaction in it. And the very next time she appeared in that room, what she appeared with? A husband. <laughs> Man, it was so sweet and it was so beautiful and it was so rich. I uh, just want to praise God. God is good. We, you, you need to be in smaller, intimate environments like that so you can hear about what God is doing in the midst of our body. That's a part of being church too. Right? Not that we just know, man, it's hard, but, man, God is doing a thing, man. He is doing a thing. He is faithful. He is Jaira, and he is more than enough. All that to be said, Emily's husband, Matt, he told me to tell y'all that if y'all want a, a Super Bowl ad, he's working on Super Bowl ads this year, and he's got a hookup. He works in marketing, and uh, he can get you a Super Bowl ad for the low low this year if you want to come through. You know what I'm saying? Just, just. 30 seconds for $3 million. That's a deal. That's a going What you want to do? One of the things that if I probably was talking to Matt or other marketing geniuses, uh, they would tell us is that really when you are trying to advertise, um, essentially you've got to create a problem and you've got to tell us why Colgate toothpaste can solve your problem. You're struggling with teeth whitening. Well, let me tell you. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Hey, the Flex Seal, my favorite. All these things that bust open and it's water going everything. Well, let me tell you what the Flex Seal can do. You know what I mean? That's kind of the advertising way. You people are not interested in spending their dollars in places unless you convince them that they need to spend their dollars in that place. Amen. We go from the thesis of this book and really the gospel, that we're not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, that it is by faith from first to last, just as it was written, the righteous will live by faith. We go from that statement to the very first three words, the wrath of God. And so some people might be wondering, like, whoa, bro, you just went you just jumped down the hill super fast. That, that was a steep dive because what all I'm going to try to say, and if I could do it really succinctly, oh, Jesus, for the next couple of minutes, is that the righteousness of God cannot be revealed unless the wrath of God is revealed as well. It's not good news unless you hear the bad news. That's why he comes straight from the good news to the wrath of God. Boop, boop. They go together. And so we're entering into this part of Romans, the rest of chapter 1, all of chapter 2, all of chapter 3. And what is going to happen is Paul is just moving into this lengthy prose, this lengthy dialogue on essentially all of the human predicament, that we are all guilty. 
And he's going to start first with the Gentile world from 18 to verse 32. He's going to talk first about the non-Jews who had not been given the special revelation. They didn't grow up in the temple or knowing who Yahweh was. And so he's going to first paint a big picture of that they're guilty too and they're not exempt. And then he's going to go into chapter 2, and he's going to talk about how the Jews, God's special people, they're also unrighteous. Even though they have been exposed to the special revelation of who Yahweh was, they are unrighteous. And then uh, chapter 3 will just kind of encapsulate it in all that all of us are unrighteous, that all of us stand guilty before God in need of his saving power. So let's talk about this Gentile world today and their unrighteousness and the wrath of God. Everybody say, the wrath of God. (laughs) Sorry, I thought this is so good. Sorry. All right, first, verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Just pause. The phrase, the wrath of God, uh, really, you need to know it is, it is really, it, 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 how these things are being written is not uh, um, by accident. You know, we got for the righteousness of God in verse uh, uh, 18, it's being linked, right? The wrath of God stands in parallel to the righteousness of God. And Paul is trying to help us understand that you can't understand the righteousness of God without also understanding the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not a popular topic. How many of y'all had a small group in the last four years and y'all talked about the wrath of God? Look, Sam got one. I only seen one hand up. The rest of y'all been doing Jeremiah 29 and 11. Y'all been doing Philippians 4, 13. You've been doing uh, God on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. But you ain't talked about the wrath of God. And we need to talk to y'all about the wrath of God. Um, the wrath of God, honestly... As, as, as Thanksgiving comes up, Matt, we were talking about you. We were debating on whether or not we were going to excommunicate you, but it's all right. We'll talk about that. Anyway, um, but the wrath of God is not something that I hope y'all bring up after y'all play apples to apples at Thanksgiving. It really does make for unpopular and uncomfortable theological discourse. And I think sometimes it's because of the poor way that the wrath of God has been portrayed to us. Seriously, like, you know, I know that, uh, you know, some, some of our brothers and sisters in Christendom, they love Halloween, and they make them little scary little things, and they say, you better choose Jesus, you know. Uh, you know the, how many of y'all been a part of them churches with the little haunted houses, and they try to scare you into Jesus, and it's like, oh, God, Jesus, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Some of, y'all, some of y'all come from them churches. And so sometimes... You know, people, we can't talk about the wrath of God because of that. Sometimes, you you know, we struggle um, to reconcile how a loving God can also be a God of wrath at the same time. We started, I gave us a pre-message before we started Romans, that theology matters and it is important. And I cannot tell you today, no matter how ineloquent the next couple of minutes are, how important this message is. And I want you, to, if you're taking notes, take notes with me, take pictures of the screen. Because what we believe about the wrath of God, it does matter. And I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable. It's in the Bible and it's clear and it's repetitive, so we can't avoid it. This is why, this is the whole reason why the avenue believes in expository preaching. So that we don't skip over the parts of the Bible we think are uncomfortable. 
Because we need it. Because there's something about the wrath of God that is actually a grace to the people who will hear it. And we got to discern what that is. First of all, if we're just looking at a strictly generic understanding of what wrath is, it's just an emotional response to perceived wrongs or injustices, right? These emotions could be anger, it could be indignation, vexation, grief, bitterness, fury, right? They're just emotions that are reactions and responses um, to injustices and evils. In the Bible, when the Bible talks about wrath, it's going to always talk about both God and humans. They both can express wrath. But... When the Bible is talking about wrath and it is applied or it's in reference to God, wrath is always, it is always his opposition to sin and evil. Write it down. I forgot to put it on the screen. When the Bible speaks about wrath in reference to God, it is always, it is always his opposition to sin and evil. Now, when the Bible speaks about wrath in reference to human beings, it is used and it's always an exhortation for human beings to stay away from wrath. Wrath is not a thing. It's not an attribute that is positively ascribed to humans. It's like, hey, uh, uh, uh. God, wrath, in opposition to sin and evil, human beings, uh, uh, y'all don't stay it, probably because you don't know how to wield your wrath. If you had the power, you'd be smiting everybody. <laughs> Raining fireballs and the earthquakes, boom, boom, get them. You'd just be getting everywhere. Wouldn't, wouldn't be no humans. Wouldn't be no humans left but you on your little island. In the Old Testament, there are some, according to uh, commentaries, there are some 20 different Hebrew words used approximately 580 times that refer to God's wrath. That's three times more than human wrath in the Old Testament. And in addition to pointing out God's emotive, emotional response to sin and evil, when you see wrath in the Old Testament, it's also to grab your attention to the severity of that wrath too. So it's not just that God has an emotional response to sin and injustice. It's he, he has a big response. It's the severity, right? Listen and read Isaiah 63, 1 through 2. It says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained in crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and stained all my clothing. This is Yahweh standing, describing judgment. That, hey, it's the image of, hey, man, that's a beautiful robe, but why does it, why does it look like it's been stained with wine press, like somebody's been stomping out wines? Oh, don't worry, that's blood that I have required. Very graphic, seems severe, because it is. Because it is. Now, although God's wrath is dreadful, what you need to know, God's people, is that God's wrath is never random or impulsive. 
It is never random or impulsive, but it's always a moral and ethical response to sin. Always. You need to know that your God doesn't just wake up one day and just, like we parent, you just get on my nerves. It's not him. It's not him. It's never by chance or happenstance. As a matter of fact, there are so many scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, that, that point to the uncanny patience of our God. When he gets to this point, he didn't just arrive there. In the prophetic books, the wrath of God is commonly presented as a future judgment, the day of the Lord or that great day. See Zephaniah chapter 1. And, and when we see it in the prophetic corpus, you know, we need to, it's kind of like a double entendre. The prophets are definitely talking about judgment in their specific moment in history, but they're also looking forward to a great day of judgment uh, when God will finally right all the wrongs and punish all those who stood in opposition to him. In the New Testament, the word wrath is kind of alluded to a little bit less frequently, um, but just like the Old Testament, when we start talking about the wrath of God and the wrath of men, they, they are dissimilar, right? There's very much a, a stark contrast. When used in regards to man, his passion or wrath is repeatedly named in the list of sins that are to be avoided. So when we talk about wrath and as it relates to men, it specifically say, hey, Ephesians 4.31, Colossians 3.8, Titus 1.7, they're not to kind of operate out of wrath and vengeance. But, everybody say but. The New Testament places a great emphasis on God and his wrath and future judgment. John the Baptist begins his ministry. This is from um, a commentary from Frank Tillman. John the Baptist begins his ministry by announcing the wrath of God that is to come from which men should flee. That's Matthew 3 and 8. Jesus likewise pronounced a wrath that is to come upon Israel and produce a great distress. That's Luke 21. Paul speaks about a day of wrath that to come that awaits some, but from which believers are to be delivered. Romans 2, Ephesians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2. And then we get that great book, the end of our canon, Revelation, which the idea of the future wrath of God features so prominently, right? And what Revelations does, just we can do a little eschatology. I, I lean a little bit more amil. So if some of y'all want to go look that up, go look it up. But basically what's happening in Revelations is, is God is, or through John, John is describing that great day in different little cycles, right? So these symbols and stuff, they're all kind of reflecting each other. But one of the things that Revelations does is it, it, it really brings you back into that Old Testament graphic apocalyptic language that we read about in Isaiah 63. For homework, somebody go read Isaiah 63 and uh, Revelations, 21, uh, Revelations uh, 19 through 21. You'll see how the language is kind of very similar. But in the New Testament, the wrath of God is not only something that happens in the future, but it's also a present reality. Everybody say present reality. Jesus states that the wrath of God abides on unbelievers right now. And when Paul is writing this, he says the wrath of God is revealed. He's, what he's saying is people are standing presently condemned right now. 
because of your opposition to God, you are right now already condemned. Ephesians 2 and 3 says, all people in their natural state, their children under wrath. So what do we say about all this? Let me give you some, some of these quotes from uh, Tillman. These are some theological considerations. You can take a picture, take it home, read it. What do we do with the wrath of God? Some deny that there is ever anger with God. Pause. Some of y'all might even be sitting in this room, and you're like, whoa, my God's not angry. I just want to encourage you to go back to your scriptures. Others think of God's wrath as an impersonal moral cause and effect process that results in unpleasant consequences for evil acts. This is kind of like auto mode, like, oh, man, you know, if bad things happen and it's just this kind of, it's not God actually personally getting involved in our business. We call that deism, where God just kind of sets it, lets it run. That's not what this is, right? This is a personal God. And still, others view God's wrath as his anger against sin, but not the sinner. Next slide. God's wrath is real. Full stop. God's wrath is real. It is severe. And what's that last word say? God is not taking his hands off this thing. He's not letting things run. And he's advised you to keep a short account of rights and wrongs, but he ain't for God. The idea that God is not angry with sinners belongs neither to the Old Testament nor to the New Testament. Do some theology. God is a personal moral being who is unalterably opposed to evil, and he takes personal actions against it. Let's just pause. One of my most earliest understandings and definitions of sin is that sin is a personal assault against a holy God. It's not a generic, oh, you know what, I just forgot to pay my taxes. But you know, what, what the lady is, I had to get my car registered. What, what's, what, who, she, she was making a mess of everything. What's, I don't, if that was y'all cousin, if you're here today, I'm sorry, I love you. You know what I'm saying, but whatever. Oh, gosh, I can't remember. But you know, it was just a mess. Who? Yeah, the county clerk, and you know, you go out there, you stand for like three days, you had to come back, whatever, whatever. And you know, I used to, you know, sometimes I'd be like, man, you know what? No, nobody need, don't nobody care about my little 2013 Dodge Caravan, whether it's registered. You know what I'm saying? It's just, no, nobody care about my, nobody missing my little $250, right? You know, whatever this lady name is, it's not like it's her money. I'm not personally offending her. <sighs> Sin is not that, y'all. When we sin, we have created a personal offense. When we click the site, when we say that untruth, when we speak in anger, when we are impatient, we're not just creating mistakes against nobody, and we're not just creating mistakes horizontally. We are creating some offenses vertically. God, where I was at. But wrath is a punitive righteousness of a God by which he maintains his moral order, which demands justice and retribution for injustice. This week, doing some more reading about eschatology, 
and how we move from a good world that God has created. And when he got done creating the good world and everything that he put in it, he said, it is good. The wrath of God is the only logical conclusion to rectify the wrong things. Because if God is loving and good, he has to annihilate evil and injustice from his good world. It's the only way it works. If he created something and delighted in it and it's been tarnished, he's got to eliminate the things that create disharmony and dystopia and are disturbing his world from being what he created it to be. It's logical, y'all. Don't fight it. It just is what it is. So why does God reveal his wrath? We know that he is revealing his wrath. The righteousness is revealed. But why does God reveal his wrath? Verse 19 says, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So on what basis do these individuals deserve wrath? Once again, this verse is just showing that God is impartial and he's fair. And that essentially there is a general kind of knowledge, we call it general revelation, that is available to all human beings because God himself has made it understandable to them. Tillman goes on to say that, We can only know as much about God as he allows us to know, but he has allowed all human beings to know just enough to hold them responsible for worshiping him and treating one another justly. So there is general revelation, and then there's special spiritual revelation. The knowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Savior of our sin, and the chief good, what we live for, we call that special revelation right? You don't just walk around, wake up knowing that Jesus is Lord, right? Even these babies we baptize, it is in hopes that one day they would grab that special, baby Olive would grab that special revelation and see for herself, oh, those people who were teaching me and raising me and caring for me, they were trying to point me towards something, right? That's all we could do. We can't force that. But what Romans 1 is clearly saying is that there is a general revelation right? There is something that is common to all of those who have been made in God's image for which they will be held accountable for acknowledgement of the one who created it all and at least rightly treating each other. There's some kind of general knowledge to which all men, Gentile, Jew, or barbarian, will be held to account. Verse 20 says, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people, what does that say? So that people are what? Without excuse. Paul is now qualifying what he has just said. So Paul's like, hey man, hey, God's made who he is clear to everyone. How? Oh, I'm going to tell you how. Because since the beginning of the world, the invisible God has made himself clearly perceptible and understandable through what has been made. Some of your words in the B part of 20, being understood, just means perceived or clearly seen, right? There's a... um, I would commend to you, especially as we are in this series, especially as y'all are going through uh, uh, the Westminster Confession in D hour, especially as we are doing more theology in the Institute. Um, One of the cool things that you can incorporate your whole family into is catechisms. 
right? So the, I, I told you this before. I just said maybe some of y'all haven't been here before. Like sometimes when I sit down with my, my kiddos and we do devotion and it's the most awkward time in our week, people passing gas, throwing Cheetos, just I'm threatening people. People want to talk too much. Daddy, can I pray again? It's just like, oh, God, help me, Jesus, please. So sometimes we read Bible stories, and I just, I just, me and Gina just take them through the arc of the Bible narrative. Who are the main characters and players and all the things, right? Sometimes we do little memory verses, right? Um, and then sometimes, a lot of times, we'll just do these short question and answers, like who is God, who made you, so and so and forth. One of the things we do is this catechism here. What is God? And my kiddos will tell me, God is a spirit. And he does not have a body like man. What Paul is doing here, he's saying, hey, God has made himself clear, plain and clear to you. Well, hold on. God is invisible, right? How is it that the invisible God is making himself clear to us? Paul says, every time you look at the created order, you know Something in you knows. Every man, boy, girl, on every continent, from every generation, even if you had never seen a steeple or a cross, you know that there's some kind of power source that exists beyond my comprehension. There is a divinity that something holy and other is out there, and you don't need to have ever read a Bible to know that. He says, every time you look at the stars, every time you take a trip out west and you see that beautiful mountain range, every time you go on your beach trip and you stare out into that great nothingness and you just see ripple upon ripple and ripple, you know you are being surrounded by greatness and bigness that's beyond your comprehension. All men have perceived and understood fundamental truths about the invisible creator, namely his eternal power and divinity as they behold his creation. This is why some will suffer under God's wrath is because they are beyond excuse. Now what's the result of unrighteous living? Let's close it up like this. He says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. The anarchy against God is not only an act of treason against God, against the God of the universe, but it's debilitating. So you're just not sitting in disobedience, but your disobedience is actually doing something to you, according to verses 21 and 23. It is the source behind the deterioration of your reasoning. Essentially, your rebellion is causing you blind people to be more blind. Sin makes you stupid. I know it's good and I know it's right. It hardens your heart even more. 
It darkens your already dull senses, and you, can, you move further and further away from the truth. Every act of rebellion you take. How do we know? He says, hey, man, everybody clearly saw his eternal power and his divinity through the created order. And when they chose, uh, and everybody knows, every, listen, this is, this is whether you were in the ancient Near East, whether you were growing up in the first century church, or whether you're in the 21st century, we give glory where it's due. When we think, even if you're a pantheist, when you think the, the bowl is worthy of being worshipped, you worship it, right? Well, they knew and they could perceive that there was something bigger than themselves that needed to be worshipped, and they chose not to give it to them, and that's the result. Now, if you think that I'm making this up, that sin makes you stupid and foolish, I'm going to read this really quickly, and I also, I got Sarah Mack to put it on the screen for us. This is Isaiah 44. This is how the Bible speaks about idols. I gave it to you in the NLT for the impact, but it's still faithful. He says, how foolish are those who manufacture idols? Oh, I didn't give it to you. Did I say Matt? Okay. Isaiah 44. Pause for a second. Pull out your um, tablets. Pull out your cell phones. I want you to read along with me. Pull out your papyri. And get your scroll. <laughs> and let me, hey, somebody from where I'm from would be proud of me. When you get there, say foolish. Only the black folks know what I'm talking about right now. So when you get there, say amen. You ain't there yet. So you got to <laughs> say so they there, they there, they there. Isaiah 44. And if you want it to be in sync, just know I'm reading from the NLT. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects, this is verse 9, these prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God? Pause. <laughs> who but a fool would make his own God? An idol that cannot help him one bit. All who worship idols will be disgraced along with all these craftsmen, mere humans who claim they can make a god. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding it and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with his chisel and plane and carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts a little shrine, puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true. He takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and keep himself warm. He says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his god a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping it and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my god. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect why it's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat. I used it to bake my bread and roast my meat. 
How can the rest of it be a God? I just like that. Can we read one more time? I burn half of it for the heat. I use the other half to bake my bread and roast my meat. How could the rest of it be a God? Should I bow down and worship to a piece of wood? The poor, deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that can't help him at all. Here's the sad part. Yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Tillman goes on to say in his commentary that essentially what Paul is saying is Israel goes on to resemble the gods that they worship, gods that cannot think, gods that cannot help, they can't reason. And guess what happens? Idols are foolish, and they can neither see nor think, and they produce people who cannot reason properly either. They produce people who cannot sit think or see as well. They exchange the glory of immortal, of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. And this, this verse is so dope. That word immortal just means incorruptible. In Paul's time in Greco-Roman culture, when you, when you were in the Isthmus games or the Olympian games or whatever and you won a crown, you got an award, they put, a, um, they put a, a crown of celery on your head. That was the symbol that you won. And the idea was like, man, can y'all imagine smelling some seven-day-old celery? The word immortal means incorruptible. And so there's very much this idea is like, man, you, you, you are actually choosing to worship things that will waste away in seven days versus the one who's immortal and incorruptible, whose glory and beauty never fades. That's a bad exchange. What gets even worse is that the people here in this verse that are being described, they're not even worshiping other human beings. They're worshiping their likeness which is even more crazy, and it was explicitly forbidden in Scripture in Deuteronomy 4. But here's the last part, I think. This is just for free. Not only are we worshiping images of humans, they're also worshiping birds and animals and reptiles. Tillman goes on to say that Paul's list follows an order that matches the animal's habitats from high to low. So you move from the heavens to just above the surface of the earth with animals, and then to the surface of the earth, the reptiles. You know what that's doing? You're moving further and further away from God. You know what else I learned this week, which is really cool? In the book of Revelations, that there are 28 references to the lamb in Revelations. And what is being done, y'all know that these guys write this thing? Y'all do the authors of Scripture just like, just like that. Paul chose to arrange his words like that, right? And we don't believe that God zapped him and then all of a sudden he was like, no, no, no. 
we believe the inspiration of Scripture was happening like this, that God did not turn Paul's personality off, but he inspired him in his intellect and his heart to write as Paul the Word of God. It's a weird thing, but we believe it. And so they take the craftsmanship and the word choice and the placement. Those are on purpose, y'all. Well, somebody, John, who wrote Revelations, chose to make 28 references to the Lamb. Which when you break it down, you have the number seven, which is the number of completion. And then you got, you multiply seven times four, which are the four corners of the earth. And that number of 28 signifies the worldwide scope of the Lamb's complete victory. So here you have this picture of this rebellion and people moving further and further away from God. And then you have this beautiful picture in Revelations of one day how the land, Lamb will completely redeem all of his good world that has been tarnished by sin. How do we close it up? Just by saying this, that God's wrath, according to one commentary, is inextricably related to the doctrine of salvation. Let me just pause. Maybe you could scribble that down. God's wrath, forever linked to the doctrine of salvation, can't be separated. If there's no wrath, there is no salvation, period. If God, not, if God does not take action against sinners, there is no danger from which sinners are to be saved. Y'all realize that? That's why I always go back on Christmas. I'm always on my high horse. It's like, man, we cannot just, Jesus Christ, and they should call his name Jesus, Matthew 1, and he will save his people from what? Their sins. If there is no danger from which sinners are to be saved, then there is no gospel. There's nothing. The good news of the gospel is that sinners who justly deserve the wrath of God can and may be delivered from it. You need to know that D.A. Carson says that in literally in every aspect where God's wrath is featured, there is always some little glimmer of grace that emerges. It's always. God does not take delight in destroying the world or sinners, none of it. And so he's always either, whether through the intercession of his lead, leaders, mediators, exhorting his people. When you read wrath passages in Scripture, it's trying to exhort you, don't go this way. You don't, you don't drive on I-240 and see the sign that says, broken bridge, and be like, man, they just trying to stop me from getting where I want to go. You thank God. That's, well, praise God. Somebody was saying, don't go this way. We don't receive the wrath passages as grace, and I would love for at least this group to rework that. Every time we see wrath in the Bible, we need to see a loving God saying, don't go this way. This one leads to sure and utter destruction. Because of Christ's loving sacrifice, loving sacrificial death, God's wrath is satisfied. 
fancy word is propitiated. His anger is turned away from all those who re receive Christ through faith. That's the good news of the gospel. Somebody's in danger. We are all in danger if we have not chosen to place our faith in Jesus. And the most loving thing we could hear is you're about to walk off a cliff. Choose Jesus' free gift of grace. I don't know who you are today, and maybe I just confirmed everything that you thought was horrible about Christianity. I'm sorry, but it's true. You are standing in hot water. But the good news of Christianity is that the God who is going to hold you to account is right now standing before you saying, I want to save you. There's nothing about what I want to do wants to see you suffer and live eternally separated from me. As a matter of fact, I went to great lengths to make sure you don't have to do that. Choose me. That's what he's saying. Choose me. That's why he says, I didn't come to condemn. I will have to condemn eventually, but that's not why I came. I came to tell you that there's good news and you can turn. Would you turn? I want you to turn. Man, I know we are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. But when I thought about this particular message and the ones we'll dive into, just thought about Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica in much the same way that he intro Romans 1. He says, hey, they tell you, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Pause. He's, he's talking about why he gives thanks for them. And he's talking about the rumors, what they're talking about the church at Thessalonica. And he say, what the word on the street is, they tell how you turn from God, from I, from, to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from coming wrath. Like, I know, believe me, I know we want nothing more than to people look at Memphis and want to be here, to love living here, to feel safe, to feel like they can thrive here, I know that. I want that more than anyone. I know that we've been sent to 38122 to, to, to come and to bring shalom to this area. But I am not for community development at the expense of the rescue mission. It would break my heart if 30 years from now they said, man, you know they planted a church over there and they have all these wonderful after-school activities and they help the homeless and whatever, 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 whatever. If it was not also coupled with, they sent people down to this area. And you know what's happened, y'all? Have we heard that people started turning away from their idols? That they turn from those idols to the living God, the one who had been speaking to them from all creation. They turned, and Jesus was able to save them from the coming wrath. That's what I want our testimony to be, y'all. It would crush me to know that we worked harder. It's got to be a both. 
And it's got to be both with a, probably a little bit of a leaning to this one. It, but it would crush me if we made people's lives better on this side. And we're not faithful to warn them about the best life that they have coming for them. Would you bow your heads with me?